by the sin of racism. And we see that by looking at history through the the missionary lens, through the colonial or neo-colonial ventures. We weren't immune to that, despite having good motives or a desire to help as the foundation of that. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Good day, everybody. This is yet another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. Um, I'm, I'm really delighted again. A very good friend uh, of mine is with me here today. And uh, like always, he will introduce himself. Max, please. Thank you, Maurice. And thank you to all of your listeners. As you said, my name's Max Finberg, and I currently serve as president of Growing Hope Globally, one of Church World Services partners. But uh, before that, my whole career has been around how to help hungry and poor people uh, to have a better life. For me, it started when I was a teenager, and it was the Great Famine in Ethiopia before the internet and uh, World Wide Web. The pictures were on TV or in the newspaper, and I felt that I wanted to do something about hunger. And the foundation then of my faith and reading through scripture from Genesis to Revelation showed how much God cared about those who were most vulnerable, widows and orphans, those who were poor and oppressed and vulnerable. So that has led me to a career of trying to do just that, both in the United States and overseas in government and outside in the nonprofit world. And uh, it's exciting to be able to feel like you're making a difference. And I know that that's the case for many of the folks who are engaged here. And I'm excited to be able to share a little more with them. Great. Thanks, Max. Tell us tell us a little bit about Growing Hope Globally, because it's, it's a pretty, um, you know, uh, not a, a huge organization, but significant. Um, but I, I really think the model and the way you work is is rather interesting. Growing Hope Globally started out as Foods Resource Bank more than 20 years ago when some farmers, Vern and Carol Sloan in Northwest Ohio, said, we have food, they're hungry people, and their faith compelled them to do something. So they shipped a container of grain from Toledo on the Great Lakes to Port-au-Prince in the Caribbean Ocean. And they said, dang, this is expensive and it's not efficient. So they got together with a number of uh, Christ-centered relief and development organizations, Church World Service included, 
and looked at the model of the Canadian Food Grains Bank, our sister to the north, and said, let's create a unique update on the biblical mandate of gleaning. We're not an agricultural society. If you're hungry, you can't just go to a farmer's field, pick a bunch of barley and make some bread as Ruth did and, uh, for her and her mother-in-law. So what they do, the way our unique model is set up is farmers and their family and friends in their rural communities uh, can dedicate a portion of the proceeds of their harvest, not the actual food. We don't send anything overseas except that the funding that they generate, uh, then they're able to choose which overseas program implemented by one of our partners like Church World Service, they want to fund. And what's great about that is anybody can write a check and does. But this is a very personal way. It's a very visceral connection for farmers and especially rural congregations and communities to be able to help in a way that makes sense. All of our programs that we support are food security, anti-hunger, agricultural development programs that promote good nutrition, enhanced income. So it's really farmers helping farmers in a way that makes sense. A big farmer in Iowa with a half a million dollar tractor and combine on hundreds of acres can't really teach a, an African subsistence farmer what she needs to do on her half an acre or an acre, but what we do is provide the funding for those partners to provide the tools and training that they need to provide for their own families. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's so awesome and, and interesting is that, uh, you know, you have created a model where you, uh, you know, are, are connecting farmers with each other. And um, yeah, I, I, I guess that that will open opens the eyes as well of, of many farmers here in, in the U.S. So if, if we have, uh, you know, uh, listeners who farm themselves, how can they, what can they do to be, uh, become part of this? Mm -hmm. Our model, uh, while theologically grounded, is agnostic on what kind of crop or what kind of uh, agricultural connection there might be. So we have... Uh, larger farmers in the Midwest who grow corn or soybeans. We have livestock. We have dairy farms that are involved. We, as you know, your fellow board member out in Yakima, Washington, works with apple orchards. I just talked with a flower farm and a farmer's market in Virginia uh, last night. Any, any connection works. And our model is all about multiplication. So a few hundred dollars in uh, donations or contributions during planting season, right about now, yields a few thousand dollars at harvest season. So for example, you might be able to get some of the inputs you need donated, seeds or fertilizer, but then a congregation, maybe in your same community, maybe in a nearby city or suburb, they're their folks can put up the money so that the farmer donates what he or she can uniquely, their land or their labor 
or maybe the church has some land and the farmer is just uh, cultivating that. Mm-hmm. There's no one size fits all. So I would encourage any listener that that's interested, that knows farmers with big hearts or a connection one way or the other, to take a look at growinghopeglobally.org and reach out. If you're mm-hmm. interested, I would love to talk with you or have one of my colleagues who are spread out around the country do just that. Max, you know, you, you know that uh, for the last nine years now I have walked 100 miles, so, you know, uh, 100 miles in a week to raise awareness about poverty and hunger and injustice. Um, and you, know, you accompanied uh, me as well during one of those days. Um, but my question to you is, if you would be asked, um, you know, to walk 100 miles for the cause, what is it? You know, for which cause would you do that? The same one that motivates you. Mm. It is a recognition that in our world, our brothers and sisters don't have enough to live, to thrive, to survive. So I would continue to join you. I would be motivated in my own life uh, to give up the comfort of just sitting at home to walk that 100 miles. I've been inspired by a friend and a mentor who fasted. He gave up food for 20 Mm. days, didn't eat as a way of raising awareness about hunger in our country and overseas. Mm. And I joined him for a couple days during that one, Mm. more than almost 30 years ago. And then when he did it again, fasted for the longest I have for two weeks. Wow. And so uh, like Jesus really feel that there's power in being willing to set that example, whether it's fasting, whether it's walking, whether it's doing the uh, fundraising bike ride, or I had a friend who was who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in mm. Africa and used that as the fundraiser to raise funds to help those who are poor and hungry overseas. Max, when, when, uh, what makes you, you know, um, get out of bed um, in the morning? What drives you in life? As I mentioned early on, when I had the chances of 15 and 16-year-old to read mm-hmm. through the Bible, I was struck that God's heart beats for those who are hungry and poor. Mm. That, as some theologians have called it, God has a preferential option for the poor. Mm. I'm blessed. We, I won the ovarian lottery, as some say. I was mm. born in the United States. Um, my parents, for the most part, had enough. There was a time when we were on food stamps, and you know that's what it took to get by. Mm. But I went to college. Uh, I have a wonderful home with a wonderful wife and great kids, and they have. Everyone is created in the image of God, and the recognition that I have 
I'm part of a local food distribution effort here in uh, suburban Washington, D.C. in mm-hmm. Maryland. A week ago today, I was uh, helping check folks in, and they were immigrants mostly from Guatemala, from Honduras, from El Salvador, from Cameroon, from Ethiopia. They just wanted to be able to feed their kids too. Mm-hmm. And so what motivates me is a, is a desire to serve, but also a recognition that they are my brothers and sisters too. Hmm. No, th- thanks for for sharing that, Max. Um, I, you know, it seems that that you know religion and and you know how I would frame it, institutionalized religion. So the church is really important for you. Uh, what I've noticed, you know, in the conversations that I've had, especially during those walks with people, young people as well as senior people, more senior people, is that it seems that the younger generation is less religious. Um, the question that I have for you, you know, do you have a similar observation? Um, so what do you see? And what I ask, would like to ask specifically to you is because, you know, you uh, also travel around the world, at least, you know, before this pandemic. Um, do you see something similar with the younger generation outside of the U.S. or outside of the West? When I grew up, my dad was raised Jewish. My mother was raised Presbyterian and Unitarian. So I I actually didn't have any upbringing in church. They were both hippies when I was born. And what was different for me is that I came to that faith. I came to that belief in God and spirituality on my own. So it wasn't part of an institution. It wasn't part of a congregation. I was blessed as a 15-year-old sophomore in high school to be able to go to Israel as the birthplace of both sides of my heritage. And I came away from that thinking, okay, there is a God. I want to find out about God. And that's how my spiritual walk started. But in answer to your question, Absolutely. We see that in mainline Protestant denominations where church attendance, especially Generation X, where I fit, millennials, and absolutely in Generation Z, church attendance is down. There isn't that allegiance to a particular denomination that parents or grandparents might have had. But As Blaise Pascal once said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in each of us. That exists whether you're young or old, uh, born in the United States or born overseas. Everybody has those questions about what matters? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And so that's where I would think that as the church continues to evolve, the capital C, big church without the particular uh, Protestant splits or even within the Roman Catholic or Orthodox churches, it's, it's really a recognition that Jesus didn't start a new religion. He spent a lot of time with a bunch of folks, 12 men, a bunch of women, and he spent time with them. He taught them by what he said as well as by his example. And that ended up changing the world. So the idea around 
the next generation needs to be more connected to discipleship, not so much church attendance, and we'll be able to continue for a third millennium as well. It works, but not some of the uh, staid institutional models that have have served us as a as humanity, us as a country mm-hmm. well. That's what needs to change. But there's still that hunger and desire that I've seen all over. Again, doesn't matter your your background, ethnicity, mm. country of origin, there are still those questions that faith in God can provide answers for. And are you talking here only about the U.S. or about, you know, your global observations? I've, like you, Maurice, have been privileged to live, live study, work overseas. Mm. And I would say that has borne itself out. And in fact, in the West, whether that's uh, the United States and Canada or Western Europe, where I've lived in England, Germany, and Italy, that the West doesn't recognize that the world is a spiritual place as much as most everybody else does. So even if they call it, call God by a different name or have a different religious background, most of the world gets that we are spiritual beings with a physical presence. So it's an easier conversation even. And that's the same way with young people, even though they too are challenging what their parents and grandparents assumed or taught or believed. Um, I would like to go back to your parents because you mentioned, you know, they, they were hippies. So how, how did they, you know, when you came home and you said, well, I belong to a church or this is what I found, what, what was their answer? Uh, the good thing is I never came home and said, I'm joining a church. That might have gotten a little <laughs> more pushback. But I was zealous. And, you know, I remember writing my parents letters about how they should come to believe and what I believe. What they understood is when I graduated from college, I moved into a uh, Christ-centered house for guys, trying to love God and love each other. And they got the communal living part because they lived on a hippie commune called Earthbridge, just down the road from Woodstock, literally. Mm. Uh, They got that. When I said, I'm going to spend a summer with the Presbyterian Church Global Youth Intern Program and go to Nicaragua, dad's question was, well, can't you serve the poor in Chicago? I mean, why do you have to go there? But my parents have been amazing at their willingness to accept something they don't necessarily share but they're the unconditional love from my mom and my dad is the foundation of why I understand God can love us like that. And so, again, there's still plenty of conversations mm-hmm. uh, with the Finbergs about what is, but it's it's been something that I've been blessed with that even though I've chosen a different path than they did, there hasn't been uh, the rejection or the... Uh, reaction that would have me sorrowful or sad at, mm. uh, at being 
in a different place than my mom and dad. Piggybacking on, on you, you mentioned Woodstock. So Woodstock was music, right? Um, if, if you, I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music um, that embodies for a big part what you are about, which song would that be? Mm -hmm. I am a huge U2 fan and have been since high school. So mm -hmm. uh, the high school yearbook quote that was a song mm -hmm. was the the... U2 anthem that came out in the Joshua Tree album when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. The song is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a great and poignant illustration for me that I'm just a sojourner here. And then U2 also has a great song on that same album, Where the Streets Have No Name, that Bono, the lead singer of U2, wrote after visiting a camp for internally displaced in Ethiopia. Mm. The streets didn't have any names, uh, but he's gone on to use both his celebrity and his wealth and his connections to found the one campaign, to found mm -hmm. Red, to do a number of things with his voice, literally and figuratively, to uh, uplift those who are poor and hungry. Mm. Great. And I got to meet him, which was way cool. Oh, wow. On, on Bono, I mean, he's worried about a lot, of, a lot of things. And you mentioned some of the important and great projects he is doing. What are some of the things that you worry about um, at the moment? The United States was founded on two original sins that still trouble us today. One was the attempted genocide of the indigenous inhabitants, and second was the enslavement of people from Africa. 400 plus years after the first African slaves arrived on the East Coast, we're still grappling with the racism the white supremacy, the, the dynamics that were infused into every part of American life. And though less attention is paid, that, that also exists uh, in terms of Native Americans. So I've spent a good part of my time and energy and effort trying to learn, trying to understand, trying to recognize the blinders I have, as it says in the Bible, the scales that are in front of my eyes. And so one of the things that a number of friends and I did came together a little over five years ago was to put together an American Lent, a biblical devotional resource for this season we're in now, to take a look at the legacy of slavery and its current impacts. So over the last year of reckoning with racial injustice that's happened a little more than has been the case before that. Mm -hmm. This is a, a great activity that's brought me together with black and white friends, male and female, to offer this resource mostly to the church, especially to white 
Christians who might not have learned it in the history books or mm-hmm. taught in Sunday school, but it's truth. And to be able to bring a biblical perspective to some of the issues of race, again, for me, both in terms of uh, the descendants of enslaved Africans, mm-hmm. as well as Native Americans currently, is, has been one that occupies my heart and mind and prayers in what we might be able to do now. Yeah, thanks for for lifting that up, um, Max. Um, if if you if you kind of uh, and I know we could have you know podcast weeks many different podcasts about this, but if you would um, critically look at the work that especially our sector, the NGO sector, has done over the last well since 1946, um, yeah, we can come up with, with certain things that uh, we did well. Um, but how do you think we did in terms of racial justice and, and lifting that up and, and fighting that? And, um, you know, what's your opinion there? The church writ large and the outgrowths of that, whether that's the relief and development arms or the parachurch ministries or otherwise, are also impacted by the sin of racism. And we see that by looking at history through the, the missionary lens, through the colonial or neo-colonial ventures. We weren't immune to that, despite having good motives or a desire to help as the foundation of that. But it's not enough. So I think that the great thing is within the church writ large, there was a recognition before society generally got there that we needed to do things different, that we needed to realize and put into practice our belief in Imago Dei, the image of God that every one of us is a bearer of. Doesn't matter the skin color, doesn't matter the country of origin, doesn't matter the race or ethnicity or gender or otherwise. So the good thing is that self-reflection and correction is happening, but we, like the rest of society, still have a lot more work to do. Where do you see hope? It's our middle name. So I see hope mm-hmm. all over the place. I am encouraged by some of your fellow board members, some of our supporters who live in rural communities and aren't exposed to people of diverse backgrounds. For them, diversity or reconciliation is uh, Catholics and Lutherans working together or Methodists and Mennonites. But I am so hopeful because some of those folks have gotten passports and pre-pandemic were able to travel overseas. And they've come to that understanding that everybody is created in the image of God, even if they're 
a foreigner, even if they're poor materially, even if they don't have the same political views. I continue to have hope, especially in the United States, where the political divisions are cavernous and extreme to the to the end. I mean, we've saw an attempted insurrection in the Capitol less than two months ago. So I still believe in a place called hope. I uh, still have quite a lot of it because people motivated by their faith or their goodwill are trying to do right. They're just not starting from a place where they know what that means. I, we, we've come to my last question, uh, Max, and that's, um, do you have any message or a question or an invitation for the listeners? Not everybody is going to feel motivated to address the problem of global hunger. I get that. But each of us have a purpose. Each of us are called by just being on the planet to pay some rent and to do that in a way that serves others beyond just ourselves, beyond our immediate nuclear family, beyond our tribe. So I would encourage everyone listening now to find what that is for them, to ask that question. What brings me joy? What motivates me, gets me out of bed in the morning, would motivate me to walk an extra hundred miles? With what are the needs of the world? What, what are the places where help, help is required? And find that sweet spot. It's going to be different for different folks, and that's great. But uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters have the phrase, uh, tikkun olam to repair the world. We're not responsible for saving the world, but we have to make sure we're doing our part to leave it a little better for the next generation. Thank you so much for uh, today, Max. It's always a pleasure uh, to talk with you. And um, I'm, I'm absolutely sure the listeners will also uh, have enjoyed listening to you and, and Yeah, you're, you're so um, articulate and, and yeah, you've given a lot of uh, stuff to think about. So, so thanks a lot and thank you for who you are and what you do. Thank you, Maurice. And thanks to everybody for spending some time with us. Great. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on www.100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. <laughs>